Hi, I'm David, and I'm the host of the Cool Jobs Podcast, a conversation where we dive deep into some of the coolest jobs on the planet. This is the home for jobs you've never heard of, or ones you never thought about before. This podcast is for students, learners, dreamers, or anyone who's interested in finding out about the coolest jobs around. I'll be speaking with experts across a wide spectrum of career possibilities with the hope that you'll find inspiration for your own career. Thanks for joining in. I'm your host, David Earnhardt, Associate Director for Employer Relations at UNC Asheville. And joining me today is Josh Dorfman, Sustainable Materials Creator. Josh, thanks for joining us for the Cool Jobs Podcast. We're super excited you're here. Well, well, thank you. It's a thrill to be here. I appreciate it. All right. Well, you know, first things first, just kind of tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you got to be where you are. Uh, Sure. So I have spent... The majority of my career is what I would call a sustainability entrepreneur or mission-driven entrepreneur. Hmm. Um, I've built two sustainable furniture companies, uh, one up in New York and one actually down here in in Asheville. Um, In between that, I spent some time at Amazon. I built a business within Amazon called Vine.com. It's like an online Whole Foods. Um, so before Amazon actually ended up buying Whole Foods. Mm. Um, and prior to that, I actually had a reality TV show and daily radio show on Sirius XM and books and um, a lot of spokesperson work all under a brand I'd created called the Lazy Environmentalist, which was me traveling around America, helping lazy Americans go green without having to work very hard. Um, and I will just... Uh, so, so yeah, so that's largely been the bulk of my career. I moved to Asheville about eight years ago and thinking that I was going to start a, a sustainable furniture company, which eventually I did. But before that, I was connected in and eventually recruited to build Asheville's startup community under um, a brand called Venture Asheville, which was incredibly fun, incredibly rewarding, uh, an amazing opportunity to help other entrepreneurs kind of pursue their dreams and realize their goals. Uh, so I I love entrepreneurship. I'm very passionate about sustainability. I would tend to work in tech and media and brand building. And that's a bit about me. There you go. So I have to dive in on the lazy environmentalist because I feel like I am one of those as well. So uh, someone who is very interested in what is the easiest way that I can help the planet. So I got to I got to dive in on, on that a little bit. What uh, what was the impetus for uh, jumping in and, and being a um, a, an assister of lazy entre- of lazy environmentalists like myself of of coining lazy environmentalism so the first company i started back in 2003 was called uh vivavi like viva v live life and mm. and i'd had this uh this sort of realization i should say as, as someone who had become very interested um in, in sustainability very concerned about the future of the planet um um and being an American living in living in the United States, I felt that the role I could play um, in creating solutions was to help consumers uh, live more sustainably. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's why I created this first. So when I created Vivavi, it was really like, well, I'm going to create this e-commerce company. It was 2003. Uh, e-commerce was still pretty new, but I thought this would be a, a relatively um, easy way to, to, you know, to distribute and sell like, uh, you know, quote unquote, green products. But my whole vision was, let me go find the best design, the most stylish products out there made with environmentally responsible materials. And then you'll just make it easy for people to make the more sustainable choice because it will be really well designed and stylish and what they want anyway. Absolutely. Um, 
which was, you know, going back almost 20 years, it was sort of a novel concept at the time, um, right? Today, thankfully, it's gone way more mainstream, which was always, you know, the hope and, and, and goal um, with some incredible brands that exist today. Um, but out of that business, I actually started in Washington, D.C., where I had quit a Ph.D. program in political science where I was focused on environment. And I'd also lived in China in my 20s. So I was doing China and politics and the environment. And after a semester, it was just like this. Absolutely not for me. Um, I'm just going to help consumers live more sustainably. That's what I'm going to do. Um, so I started this business. I was working out of my apartment in Washington, D.C. I had one employee at the time, um, my office manager. And on, I, I ended up deciding to move the company up to Brooklyn at the end of 2005. I believe, yeah, two, or maybe the end of 2004, 2005, we were moving up to Brooklyn because that's where the best sustainable furniture designers on the planet were en masse. They were in mm. Brooklyn and I was going to go get around them and work with them. And so uh, Lucy, on her last day working with me, took the opportunity, since I was no longer her boss, to lay into me for being an absolutely terrible environmentalist in my personal life. Mm. Right? Like, you're selling all this green stuff, but you're always in the shower, you barely recycle you're moving, you're going to throw your bed out. I took it to the homeless shelter. Like you are a jerk, right? Like you are not, you are, you are a hypocrite. You are, Hmm. I don't even understand, like it's furious. And I had in 2004, I'd been at a conference and I heard uh, the CEO of Patagonia at the time, Patagonia, one of the, probably the most enlightened, one of the most enlightened companies on the planet from a sustainability social point of view. Um, talking about how his company was failing because the recycled content in their fleece had declined over the previous year from like 80% to 60% or something. Hmm. And it was like, everybody in the audience was like, what is like your paddock? What? Like, you know, and he was like, look, we're good, but we're not, we're not holding ourselves up to our standards and we're not meeting the expectations that our customers have of us. And we need to be really honest and truthful about owning where we're falling down. And Hmm. so I, that was so instrumental to me. And so with Vivavi, when I got called out by my employee, I was like, you know what, I'm going to own this. And we had a, I had a blog at the time. Um, so I wrote on my blog, I wrote about myself and I called myself a lazy environment. I said, look, I want to do my part for the planet. I take long showers. I do my best thinking in the shower. I know I'm using energy to heat water and I'm using a lot of water. I'm not like proud of that. I also know that as much as I care about the planet, I'm not going to change my behavior. And like, mm-hmm. so what I need is industry or someone to invent an incredible low flow shower head with unbelievable water pressure. So I can reduce my energy. You reduce my water usage and still have a great shower. Mm-hmm. I will buy that, but I'm not going to change. And I'm not saying like, I'm like, I'm, I'm proud of this. Like I'm not, but this sure. is reality. I care. I'm lazy. I'm a lazy environmentalist. And I think there's millions of Americans who probably would get on board with change if the solutions fit our lives. Mm. That's such a, so that's such a, how's what to say it, uh, enlightened way of thinking. And at the same time, it took someone uh, kind of taking you to task a little bit about that. And, and uh, that was a brave thing for her to do. I can imagine, uh, you know, I, I, I'm curious how that landed with you. I, I mean, obviously it, it inspired some change and it pushed you to, to do something different, but in the moment, how are you, how are you feeling about that? Uh, well, you know, I'm, I would say, you know, part of my personality is I, um, I like to be challenged. And Mm. so, and especially when I know, like, it's just straight up like the truth. And so, 
there was she was just absolutely right there was nothing i could say except just own it you know like yeah. you're just absolutely right like i am a giant hypocrite and like mm. i don't mind that you know so um uh, yeah so it just i had to really go think about it you know i had but it, so it forced it challenged me and and i certainly i i have like always appreciated that it took yeah. me a while to, you know, i would say it took me about a week to process it it you know it wasn't like a straight up like like immediate oh i'm gonna go write a blog about this but the more i thought about it and thought about it, i was like you know like I, I think this is an opportunity and and i need to kind of come clean here because we were building a values-based company mm -hmm. and just like patagonia i felt therefore a responsibility uh as the owner to be very truthful and authentic with our audience who was becoming you know who were following us and becoming passionate about what we were doing um mm. So I think it was it was a bit of a risk to, you know, to put it out there, but I felt that it was the the right thing. I didn't think too hard about it, but I just thought, you know what, I'm going to put this out there because I feel it's the right thing to do. Well, and sometimes I think that we get into uh, positions where, you know, it, it, I don't know if it's power necessarily or if it's, you know, it, just in a position where we think we we kind of have the right answer and then to get feedback that we may we may not be living up to values that we uh, are espousing. It, that's that's kind of a gut check uh, to to put it a little mildly. And so uh, the ability to be able to take that feedback and and internalize it and then turn it around and say, you know what? Yeah. Let's uh, let's actually do that, uh, that I'm getting this feedback about that the, that the universe or that this other person is giving me uh, is is a really powerful thing. So I think that's that's an awesome story to tell. Thank you for that. Well, just to kind of maybe piggyback back on that a little bit, you know, I didn't. I didn't start Bavavi or Lazy Environmentalist just I didn't just one day come up with the idea of like, hey, I'm just going to help consumers go green. I mentioned I was in this Ph.D. program. Um, before I was in the PhD program, and I actually like I, I had gone and gotten my MBA, but when I was in my MBA program, and I'll tell you why, like I was in my MBA program, actually still in a time in my twenties where I was like, like in for me, I was still questioning everything, right? I was mm -hmm. questioning capitalism. I was questioning sure. why we had these environmental issues that we have. I was, you know, like who who controls the rules of the quote unquote. Um, you know, game, so to speak, the market economy, like, like, why do we have all this pollution? And where it came from was, so um, when I finished college, I had a three-year plan coming out of school. I graduated in 1994 and a little bit to my parents' chagrin, I knew I was going to be a ski bum for a year. So right. I knew I was going to, I knew I was going to bail, which I didn't really like let it let on until probably like April of that year. <laughs> Hey guys, I got some good news, you know, which was not, was not perceived as good news. Um, the deal I made with my dad was that I would take like every uh, graduate entrance exam, like graduate degree, you know, known to mankind. So like um, GRE, LSAT, GMAT, I'd take them all before I went out to Colorado. Nice. Um, but I, I knew I was going to go to Colorado and then I knew I was going to go to China. And so I, so I, this was my three-year plan. And so I went, so I did because I thought I was going to have a career at state department, foreign service, um, mm. something like that. And I was really fascinated with China. And so um, I got a job teaching English in a, on a university out, outside of uh, Nanjing, China, um, which was great. Uh, you know, I was teaching graduate students, um, but, but I was so keen to learn as much about the culture as I could. I ended up getting this part-time job in a factory that was, um, and I was working for a company called Kryptonite Bike Locks. I'm sure mm. some, probably some of the students on campus still 
probably, you know, these have kryptonite bottlenecks. They had invented this U-shaped lock and they were moving manufacturing to China and they needed an American. And I here I was, I was like 23 years old and went to work in that factory. And um, it was in, just an incredible cultural experience for me. But I ended up working for kryptonite full time, opening an office and having this really life altering experience in my 20s. And we opened a factory in Southern China in 1996, I wanna say, or partnered with a, a Chinese company to, on this factory. And I was traveling with a Chinese owner to this uh, restaurant where we were gonna celebrate outside of Guangzhou. And we get to the parking lot and we're, he was driving a Mercedes. Um, you know, it was still like really like communist China, but like the, mm -hmm. you know, the cognitive dissonance, but he's driving a Mercedes and he gets out and he says to me, Josh, look, my Mercedes is the biggest Mercedes in the parking lot. And you know, like, pride chest swelled up and and i just i'd been there for about two years and i thought right like in many respects you're you're like us right you mm -hmm. want bigger you want more bigger everything and like i get that and that's what you guys want and certainly as americans like that's what we're exporting right like, that's what we want the world to embrace and i started thinking but here i am selling bike locks thinking like gosh there's a billion people riding bikes i'm going to retire by the time i'm 26 years old <laughs> but then i started thinking oh my gosh like you know, all the tunnels, bridges, highways, all this infrastructure for cars that I'd seen just in the two years I've been there. And I had this thought of like, there's gonna be a billion cars here. You know, like, mm. I don't know anything about global warming, but like, this is the world we're going towards and this is gonna be problematic. And it was like, certainly an epiphany and that absolutely changed my life. And so mm. before I got to the point with Vivavi where I was like, oh, I'm just gonna help consumers do this blah, 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 nice thing and like shop sustainably. I was like, kind of went through sort of a, what I would call like a hardcore activist face and so <laughs> i bring this all back david to what you said about like um how did that land with me hmm. i had to evolve a lot in my thinking of my paradigm for what is an effective way to try to drive shape uh you know behavior change hmm. um, and it was a process for me and it was uncomfortable for a number of years yeah and i can imagine too especially i mean there's there might be a little bit of uh uh, you're inspired a little bit to, to kind of think, oh, well, that's a different culture than mine, or that's, you know, they're doing it their way because that's what they need to do, but I can do it a different way, or, or we do it differently in the United States. I can imagine that there is a little bit of that kind of um, almost putting it off, you know, not, not trying to own uh, a piece of that, and, and I think that's a, you know, to be able to uh, go in and actually be that, that, uh, thoughtful about it and to be a, an activist, uh, as you mentioned, is a, is a big deal. And so it makes me wonder now, you know, we talked, we, we named this podcast um, Sustainable Materials Creator. And so I wonder, uh, you know, how you got from, you know, some of these other roles that you've talked about as far as being in China and also being a, um, building a, building uh, furniture and being a part of uh, some of the, the, the lazy environmentalist and to now being in the creation space and in the actual and being an entrepreneur, obviously, but then actually making a material uh, that addresses some of those things that you were talking about. Yeah, the so, yes, yeah, so we are focused on materials right now, um, specifically what we would call structural building materials so that you could build homes out of or, or one day high rises out of. Um, apartment buildings. The way we got to it, or the way I got to it was, I ended up, as, as I mentioned, when we first started talking, I, I built this furniture company down here in Western North Carolina. And we were using, um, I was really excited about it. It was called Assembly, like Simple Assembly. And it was 
had this vision of of trying to do four things at once and to do all four at once is really hard. And that is um, manufacture in America, be entirely sustainable, have incredible design out of an affordable price. Right? Mm. Like, and that was like the, the sort of design challenge, this box that we had to try to fit into to succeed. And we got a long way toward it, which was awesome. Um, we started selling furniture. We got picked up um, nationally by West Elm, big furniture company, mm -hmm. and we're having success with the business. Um, but what I started experiencing um, before the pandemic and then through the pandemic uh, was the quality of the material that we were getting. So we were using what's called um, this very premium, premium, high quality plywood, Forest Stewardship Council certified. It's called Apple Ply. Um, and beautiful but what we were experiencing was from one board of it to another the quality was getting so bad that to the point of, of we couldn't use it it was uh, just simply unusable the prices were going up quality going down you know we're still cutting down trees at the end of the day to make furniture and i just started feeling like gosh if i i feel like the bigger opportunity is to focus on materials come up with better materials on on these dimensions right lower price higher quality don't cut down trees um and in that moment, as I was thinking that way, I was connected to another entrepreneur who had spent uh, six years um, previously at SpaceX working on building rocket ships and was actually um, overseeing the environmental controls and life support systems uh, team for the Dragon spacecraft. So building all the components, all the materials and the factories to build those components materials that would you know, first kept mice alive and then kept humans alive going up into space. Sure. And we were introduced to, he had started a manufacturing company here in North Carolina. So we were introduced to talk about our products. I vented my frustration to him and he came back to me and said, well, that's really interesting because me and my team from SpaceX, you know, we spent the last few years thinking about what biomass, what, you know, an alternative to trees might we be able to grow into the millions of acres um, that could grow so fast that as it's growing, it's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, right? By virtue, mm -hmm. just like trees, right? As trees grow, they right? Um, mm -hmm. inhale, inhale carbon, exhale oxygen. <laughs> sure. um, so fast growing by bamboo or in our case, starting with hemp or other materials, like they just grow so much faster and they grow every year and you can cut them down every year. And like, you can just take a lot more carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, that's what we're thinking about. And so we thought, well, what if we put these two ideas together and develop new materials that could be this wonderful carbon capture and sequestration solution. And we could go build this huge business um, with better materials and do all of this good for the planet. Um, but the good for the planet is just embedded in the business, right? So the mm -hmm. more material we sell, the more good we're doing for the planet. And that's mm -hmm. really, in my mind, the definition of what is a sustainable business um, and how you create like real value in the world. You don't try and just bolt on the environmental benefit by like, oh, we donate to charity. Well, donating to charity is nice, but that doesn't make you a sustainable business. Right? Sure, like, yeah. The guts of the business have to align with uh, reducing footprint and so we just got really excited about that. We decided to go for it. Hmm. So take me through that process a little bit. So you mentioned, uh, you know, bamboo and hemp and some of these other kind of fast growing uh, carbon negative type of uh, uh, materials. And at the same time, you, you I mean, these are uh, materials that grow from from varying uh, um, soils and from di different locations. And you have to decide like, Okay, so there's fiber here and, and the fiber is helpful for what you want to build your material out of. But take me through the actual process of it, it, you think about you're thinking about a, a plot of land and seeds. 
to what you're building now. Can I take me through that, um, sure. the actual process of that? Sure. So yeah, I'll, and I'll, I'll take you through the process and also kind of state of the industry today because they go hand in hand. And yeah, so yeah. in 2018 at the federal level in the US, hemp was legalized. Um, so before that, you wouldn't have had this opportunity. Although some states started doing trial programs around industrial hemp, North Carolina being one of them, which we started in 2014. So farmers have had, you know, now let's call it six or seven potential years of experience um, with hemp, um, you know, this go around now that hemp is legal again, but we can, sure. we can start the conversation here, right? <laughs> so what that means is um, to, if you're going to start with seed, it means a lot of the seed that you need to plant isn't here, right? It's mm. you're, you have to go and find places in the world where hemp has been grown and harvested now much longer than it was in the U S. So, um, so for us, we're turning to Australia and China and Europe where um, there, there are seed banks and where you can actually, you know, get seed. So we're, we're importing seed into the U S now bear in mind that we just started this business um, February. We started working on it February, 2021 incorporated in May, 2021. So we're very mm. early, right? Yeah. Um, but so we are importing seed um, for 2022. We've identified farmers in North Carolina who have experience with growing hemp. There are 1500 farmers or so that are registered with the state of North Carolina to grow it. Um, and you'll find that in most states around the US right now. Um, so what we're doing in 2022 is we're actually doing a lot of R&D. I mean, we're gonna plant these different seeds on, on, you know, small plots. So maybe an acre up to 10 acres per, per plot per seed. Um, we're going to experiment with um, the, the time of, you know, of the season, the planting season that we put that seed in the ground. Do we didn't do it mid-March? Do we do it mid-April? Do we do it mid-May? I mean, there's so much learning. We're going to mm -hmm. experiment with how far apart do we plant those seeds per square foot? Meaning, because when that, that industrial hemp comes up, um, if you're planting your seeds further distance apart, you can potentially get, you know, um, plants that will have a wider diameter. They'll have more room to grow, mm -hmm. but that may or may not be optimal because for us, for planted, for our company, what we are, what we are striving for is simply how much hemp could we grow like on a per pound or tonnage basis per acre per year. Um, and so, Maybe it's spacing it apart wide. Maybe it's putting it closer together. There's, you know, there will, there will be things on the other end of when do we harvest it? Do we harvest it before it flowers, right? Because flowering, I mean, it's a different plant, but we'd be talking about CBD. If you're going for industrial mm -hmm. hemp fiber, that's not, it's not an opportunity, but you still have to think about the flowering of the, of the hemp stock. There's a whole, all these factors that we need to understand to figure out what's going to give us just the, mo the most tonnage we possibly can get per acre because that will take the most carbon out of the atmosphere and then create the most efficient way for us to capture that material um, and then bale it, right? So we'll put it in, it will look like hemp, it will look like hay. Um, mm -hmm. So it will, it will get baled into hay. It'll be transported then to our facility where we will have our production line. Um, we're building our, so we, we're developing this prototype production line which is completely novel. And this is the technology that we believe will revolutionize construction materials and manufacturing because typically when like, so we're starting with a structural panel for our home. So basically think of it as like the guts of your subfloor, you know, the, the, the thing that's behind your wall that, that you nail to the two by fours 
and you know the kind of the backbone of a roof, so to speak. So these panels mm-hmm. that go all around the house and in the subfloor. Um, when you build a new factory, the way the industry works today, that factory will cost over four hundred million dollars. It's okay. a, it's like a small town. It's sure a massive, massive scale. It's it's all anchored around a machine that will press that wood together, like because you know, all of these materials are made from wood, um, into a, a ultimately into a sheet that could be three eighth inches thick, half inch thick, four feet wide, eight feet long. To do that at the way the industry works, that machine is actually eight stories tall and weighs four million pounds. <laughs> there's basically only two companies in the world that make that machine and they don't make a lot of them and so they are unbelievably expensive right and then everything is sized around that you have to be able to dry all the wood because it gets to the that mill and it's still 50 percent wet right you have to be able to separate it you have to be able to cut it like it's massive so instead of doing that which we think um we understand why the industry works that way but we think we can do it entirely differently for for a couple of reasons um we're building a production line so it's not eight stories tall and four million pounds it's actually four feet wide you know maybe it's eight feet tall um, but it's four feet wide it's 200 feet long and it's what we would call a continuous press or a continuous line so what that means we would take a bale of that hay that's coming from the field it would come into our facility we would be able to take that bale of hay just feed it right into our production process. It would get separated. It would get cut. It would get um, kind of, you know, sort of laid out in a way where we could then apply uh, essentially glue to it. Um, And we would have a very different um, way that's um, to press it into a board that doesn't require all that machinery. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a team from, from SpaceX, right? That's not just my co-founder, but a whole team that you know they built rocket ships they've and they beat boeing to space right so they know how to beat huge competitors and do things cheaper and faster um so we're kind of applying the spacex thinking to completely reimagining what a what a factory looks like that builds materials and the other thing i'll say about it which is really exciting is that the reason why we can think this way is because hemp or bamboo or some of the other things we're looking at, but if we just stick with hemp, hemp can grow all over the country, right? So Mm -hmm. hemp can grow very close to where that home builder is who needs the material. And so you don't, but trees are only in certain places in the country. And so if you're doing trees, you have to have this massive factory where the trees are because the most expensive thing, which breaks the model, breaks the financial model in the business is if you have to take those bales of hemp hay and you have to ship them more than, let's say, 50 to 75 miles, that trucking cost kills your Mm. business, right? You immediately can't compete on price. So you must be close to your source of material to be in this kind of business. But hemp can be almost everywhere, which means you can think about where you put your factories very differently. And you can think about the size of your factories very differently because they can be sized to the local market that you're trying to sell to. Um, and so you can have, and by doing that, you can, you know, inst- instead of moving all this material around or finished goods, you can take a lot of carbon out of your supply chain because you're not shipping as much and a lot of cost out of your supply chain. And hemp actually enables the innovation that we're going to create on the manufacturing side, which is why we put these two things together. 
No kidding. It's funny. I, I, you know, you don't think about the log truck on the, on, on the highway, you know, that's, that's pulling logs from wherever they cut them to, to one of the sawmills in, in Alabama or in, you know, somewhere that's not in the uh, local vicinity. Right. And, and the, the idea of being able to kind of make it modular where you can right. take it and widely distribute. Um, that's really, that's an innovative and, and exciting idea. I really like that. That's, um, that changes, like you mentioned, it changes the the profit margin and the, the the mode of being able to do the work. But it also it, it keeps you know it it makes a a product more more local, right? So the person who made the who who worked in the factory to build this board might be the brother of the person who is who is doing the construction on the house that is going to use the board right and so it takes out potentially some of the other um uh distance i guess from from where something is made and and where it's actually used that's really that's innovative i really like that yeah thank you i mean i can barely sleep i'm so excited you know it's just like <laughs> it's you know it's just um it feels like so you kind of like I'm sort of parsing some of the questions you've asked me, but how we got here, you know, to me, like working in sustainability is um, you just, obviously it's a journey, but I've always felt that um, I would like when I did the TV show or I did the radio show, I had no experience doing that stuff. And it was exciting. It was also just incredibly nerve wracking. Like I just, right. Like I just, whatever. So any opportunity that's ever been offered to me, if it felt like it, it was aligned with my values, if it meant I was going to have to move or step into, you know, roles that I didn't, you know, were, were you know, I wasn't necessarily prepared to go. I was going to take it because I really mm -hmm. wanted to have to build this sustainability career and it's becoming easier to have a sustainability sort of driven career. Like, so maybe I can say it differently. Like it's becoming easier to go work for companies and align your value like your values about the planet or society with your job because there's more companies now but it's it's and i still don't think it's actually that easy um but that was always just like super that was the most important thing to me for a very long time and now with planted um you know a lot of stars aligned and i felt as an entrepreneur when i connected with wada my co-founder and then the other spacex team and some of the other people connected to this business um you know christian our first employee jill one of our, our marketing advisors you know we, we have great advisors kelly our finance advisor like the people who have like connected into this business um this is the greatest team i've ever had to go build mm -hmm. a new company from scratch and so it just became clear like the universe was like yeah, you need to like, this needs to happen now, right? Because um, I sort of have that feeling about it. Sure, absolutely. And I can, and I can imagine too, like, you probably learned a lot of lessons in some of your other businesses as far as how to be intentional with who you're, uh, who you're choosing to be advisors and to be employees. And at the same time, there are values that are more pervasive in the, in just in, in our culture uh, to be able to find those people a little easier. So I, I think that's um, serendipity is absolutely a thing. I believe in it. And so it sounds like, uh, it sounds like you're having some of that as well. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. So uh, you talked a little bit about the production process and kind of getting it from field to uh, field to form. We'll say it that way uh, yeah. in whatever form you're planning on using it for. So 
at some point it has to get it has to get sold and it has to get um, into a consumer's hand. And so, how are you uh, how are you thinking about that going forward? I know that you probably are are still in a in a production uh, scale up and and trying to figure out exactly uh, what your what your run rates are going to be and and how all that's going to work out. So, just tell me take take us through what your thought process is as far as who would be interested in this and and, and what your uh, um, what your pitch would be in order to get them to uh, to to jump on board? Sure. So when we when we when we thought we had an idea here back in February, and we knew that we were going to try to come up with an, a material that would be an alternative to wood. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start, you know, thinking at the very big scale, and you say, okay, well, where does where does timber go in this country? It goes eighty percent of it goes into residential construction. Mm-hmm. So we knew that our starting point was gonna be home builders, right? Or at least residential construction. Um, it wasn't gonna be paper or was it was just like, we're going, right? Because again, it comes back to, we wanted as much tonnage as we possibly can is our is our ultimate goal, is that's mm-hmm. carbon capture. And so we, we, before we did anything, before we spent any money, before we even like officially incorporated the company, we probably talked to about 25 home builders um, and said, hey, here's what we're thinking about doing. And, you know, one, what should we build? What's wrong with, you know, the materials as they're built today? What are your problems? What can we do better? Let's, let's understand that. Um, and we started to see that home builders, particularly custom home builders and modular manufacturers, you know, building homes and factories um, were super interested. Uh, the, the, the pitch is we are gonna build a product that is the same price as what you pay today it will perform better. Um, it will be more moisture resistant, like we talked about, it will be stronger. We can translate that, those things into tangible benefits for you, the home builder. Um, and it will also be more sustainable. But, and, and, and the key like, point there is that we are not trying to get home builders to buy our product because it's more sustainable. Mm-hmm. We're, we are, I mean, we're, we're building this company ourselves because it's more sustainable, but we have the opportunity simply to say to a customer, look, you care about sustainability. We care about sustainability, but we have a, and we have a board that's better for the planet, but it's also actually going to make your life easier on a job site, or you're going to help you build a better house. And it's the same price. Mm -hmm. And it's those, it's, it's that um, kind of combination of those three factors, which is what's getting builders, even though we're still, you know, um, you know, when we think about kind of our time frame, we will come to market in 2023. Mm. So, um, you know, we're, we're not, it's not like we're saying we can sell this to you tomorrow, sure. but we're still getting builders to sign um, what are called letters of intent or LOIs expressing their, you know, putting in writing. I mean, it's not a contract, but it's an expression of, you know, significant interest. Yeah. We're going to buy this. Um, and we're going to buy this if it's the same price, if it's made of sustainable materials, and it meets all of the quality standards that we demand and expect in a structural panel that we build a house with. So um, that once we started having those conversations and getting those, like getting some paper signed with builders, then we really thought, man, there's something here because, you know, People are, are, are really are, are being very supportive. Builders are being very supportive. Not, and it's not out of charity. It's not out of kindness. It's just the, that value proposition to them completely resonates. Hmm. 
And I can imagine too that they want to be able to say that they build a better house than their than their competitor that doesn't use your use your product, right? I mean, like they can. It, there is a value proposition from a getting more business potentially out of it um, by saying it's it's stronger and it's it's uh, more moisture resistant, like some of those other things that you were mentioning there. So there is a um, a small amount of competitive advantage there for them as well. I would imagine. Yeah, and and that's something that we really need to. Um, um, amplify, right? That, that is mm -hmm. the, the, the core vision. And I think the opportunity that we have at planted versus this industry is to actually, um, to go, to go actually market ourselves to homeowners, to consumers, mm -hmm. to renters, right. To say like homes can be built out of this instead of that. Um, and to get, <clears throat> you know, the, the goal. So we have to build the best panel and then we, I think if we have the best panel um, and it's the most sustainable, we have an opportunity to build a brand and have a conversation with, um, you know, with people who live in homes, with everyone to say there is a better way and this is the way and to actually try to get home, you know, I mean, I say homeowners, but we're selling multifamily, we're selling to renters, whatever, like to, to start asking builders, hey, what's, what is in the wall? Are you using planted? And that's like the North Star for our brand and our marketing um, is to try to kind of create that interaction um, with you know, people who live in homes and people who build homes. That, that will be, if we, if we start to move the needle there, you know, that will, that's one, um, one, one sort of way to kind of uh, sort of show success. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm already you're selling me on it. So I think we're uh, you're you're already doing that from the consumer's perspective. You're doing a nice job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so uh, part of this podcast really likes to focus on um, the idea of resilience and, and how you can kind of fail forward. Mm. And so I'm curious uh, what you maybe if you have an idea that, or maybe if you can tell a story about an idea that you had that you were like, man, this is going to be a total winner. It's going to work and it's going to be awesome and everything's going to work out that didn't work. And then maybe the flip side of that is you did something. You're like, oh, let's just take a flyer on it. Let's see what happens. And it actually really worked out. Hmm. Um, well, I'll tell you like kind of, is there a resilience question that follows on top of that? Um, this is, this is it. <laughs> okay. So, you know, one of the things that, that springs to mind for me and it, and it just stays with me, it, thankfully it stays with me is, um, you know, so one of the things I took a flyer on, we've already talked about um, is when I created the lazy environmentalist, um, mm -hmm. that brand. Right. And, and um, took a flyer on it. It worked out. I, I think it was, um, the right timing. And that matters a lot. I started that brand in 2005. It was really before the culture was really getting attuned to sustainability. But in 2006, uh, Al Gore, um, his movie An Inconvenient Truth came out. And then suddenly mm -hmm. the culture was like glommed on to sustainability. And so, you know, right place, right time, talented enough to, to ride that wave. It was great. But, but in that, like while I was doing that, you know, I remember this moment where, um, so I had my radio show. It was on Sirius Satellite Radio before they merged with Sirius XM, but live daily show. And you know, then it, I did it. It was just about for two years. I mean, it was basically two years. And, and the, then the, the channel I was on was bought by a different company. And basically within two weeks, they're like, yeah, thanks. You're done. Right. And, <laughs> wow. and yeah, I mean, with really without 
much forewarning, like, you know, we've, we appreciate it, you know, like off you go. And so I was feeling um, a little bit resentful of how that was presented to me. Hmm. And then, so after I was notified that the show was going to be, um, you know, it would be over, uh, the producer came back to me or someone at the company came back to me and said, oh, hey, by the way, we'd like you to do one more show because there's another woman that we're very interested in, her potentially being talent. Um, we'd like you to you know, interview her on air because we want to evaluate her. And I just remember being like so put off by that, right? Like hmm. so irritated. I was like, why after yeah. you treated me, would I possibly do this? You know, and so like, yeah, on the resilience sort of like, but like it was like, you know, feeling sorry <laughs> for myself. And, and I remember I talked to my dad and my dad said to me, he was like, he was like, look, he's like, just do it. He's like, you do the right thing. Like you close out this, you know, this chapter on, you know, the right note, um, mm. you take the high road, you know, just so you know that you handled it, you know, in, in a manner that, you know, kind of aligns with who you are, Josh. And I really didn't want to do it, but I ended up saying, yes, I listened to my dad and I did it. And the turned out the woman who I interviewed, she was wonderful. And not only was she wonderful, like we really connected and she, you know, she was like, gosh, Josh, you're like, you know, just, you know, you're a great talent. I'm going to introduce you to my agent. And she, her agent was at William Morris, now William Morris Endeavor. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I got my agent was because I did that show. And, um, <laughs> you know, so I think about that a lot when like you're sort of like in lows or things aren't working out to just like remember that um, you never know how things are really going to work out. Mm -hmm. um, that, so that's sort of a mental model for me. Um, when I think about how do I stay resilient when things are getting hard and, or it's yeah. like frustrated or angry with someone or feeling bad or, you know, or like that sort of like, yeah. Um, uh, you know, just sort of wallowing in that self pity, <laughs> right? Like I, I have these mental models now born out of experience that I can latch onto because they actually like are my experience to say, go do it, just move mm -hmm. forward. Things are going to work out. That's awesome. And I really like that too, of, you know, you have a, um, a track record, track record of success for, you know, listening to, uh, in this case, your father, but also uh, in a lot of cases, the, the inner monologue of, you know, do it right, do the right thing, you know, even if it's, even if it's hard, even if it's challenging, it, and, it, and it ended up working out for you. I really like that. Thank you for that. That's a cool story. Cool. Yeah. Well, I, I always like to take this opportunity to give our guests the opportunity to kind of pay it forward um, and to think about um, maybe someone that they know that has a really cool job uh, and why. Mm. Let's see, probably. Um, who do I know who has a really cool job and why? Well, I think that... Um, you know, so when I started, so this actually is not about sustainability. Uh, this is um, more so my experience here in Asheville. Uh, when when I, I mentioned I ran this organization, Venture Asheville, uh, to work on startups and help entrepreneurs, it was part of, of what here in, in Asheville is the Economic Development Corporation. So it's really the Economic Development Organization. It's a private-public partnership um, to really help the entire economy of Asheville in this county um, you know, grow, flourish, create opportunity. 
and I think, you know, a friend of mine who, who was actually recruited me when I built Venture Asheville now runs that group. It's, his name is Clark Duncan here in mm-hmm. town. And I think Clark has a really cool job because Clark's job is to think about, um, he has a, a great team that works with him, you know, recruiting companies here that will be, that fit our community, that see themselves in our community, that will create opportunities for those who are in our community today. And the children of those people who are moving here right now. Um, so there's a there's a cool recruiting aspect about telling the Asheville story. And then a lot of the work is about helping companies that are here find the resources they need to grow and thrive and, mm. and, and stay here so that they also see their future here. So they're not actually moving to other places for, for opportunity. Um, but all of that, I just think is really neat. And I think the cool thing about doing that work in Asheville, uh, you know, we have some massive, I mean, corporations here. I mean, obviously we have awesome local businesses and it's, I mean, we all know like what makes Asheville so special, but you combine that with like General Electric, right? GE has a, like they make, um, you know, engines for airplanes here. Like the most fuel efficient engines in the world are made here, Mm -hmm. like 10 minutes from downtown. And I remember talking with the woman who was um, running human resources for GE. She was here for a stint before she went back to Cincinnati where they're headquartered. And we were talking and she was like, you know, Asheville is such an interesting place because it's small enough for everyone to know each other, but it's big enough to attract companies like us. Right? Mm-hmm. Like the, so I feel, again, so as someone who's really passionate about economic development, just a student of it and like to think about it, you know, Clark's job is to think about, well, how do you harness all of that opportunity of an incredible community and make that community stronger and more vibrant as we think about like resiliency and sustainability mm-hmm. on a more citywide or community-wide level? I just think that's really engaging work to be able to be part of. So I, I think he's got a pretty cool job. That's cool. I like that. And uh, Clark's a good egg too. So it's, uh, he's always, uh, it, he's in the right job and you got the right person for it too. So it works out well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, good. Well, thank you so much for being a part of the the, uh, the podcast and sharing your time and energy with us. Uh, how can our listeners find out more about you and, and about Planted? So to find out about Planted, you could go to our website, which is plantedmaterials.com. I'll just spell the planted part, P-L-A-N-T-D. Um, so plantedmaterials.com and sign up for our newsletter, find all of our social. Um, I do most of my personal posting on social media on LinkedIn. Uh, so that's probably the easiest way to, to find what I'm talking about and, and connect with me personally. Uh, and so if anyone's listening and wants to reach out, um, please, by all means do, and would be happy to you know, see where those conversations go. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Josh, for sharing your time and your expertise and uh, your really cool job with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, David. I really enjoyed it. So it was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Cool Jobs Podcast, a service of the Career Center at UNC Asheville. Like what you heard? Give us a like, share with your friends, and subscribe. Next week, we'll be talking to Tracy V. Wilson, history storyteller. So make sure to check it out. We'll see you next time.